the children still ask, why on this evening do we eat unleavened bread? Why on this evening do we eat bitter herbs? The answer comes in the story of God's deliverance from oppression and slavery. Over our time together, I want to explain the Passover meal, which the disciples were eating with Jesus during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I'll make several references to other parts of the Bible, and I will do my best to explain the imagery, the story behind those references, so that we can journey together through a powerful night with Jesus and his disciples. The Passover meal had to be prepared in a certain way. That's why you see several elements and food and and different concoctions laid out in front of me. The Passover meal had to be prepared in a certain way to retell the powerful story, the story of provision of God's people. The careful and deliberate preparations for the Passover are a clue that in this foundational event, Jesus sees this moment, this feast, this meal, as the proper time to reveal once again what he is about to do for the disciples and for humanity. The story begins in the early pages of the Bible. God creates a world. He creates people and life to live in harmony with each other. Humans decide that they can rule better than God, though. Their desires get twisted and the world begins to spiral. God then selects a representative to reintroduce himself to the world in the form of a family. This family grows and is known by the world as Israel. Hardship befalls this family, and they are then enslaved in Egypt. They are forced to work. God has not forgotten his promise to this family, though, to bless all of the nations of the world through this family, to reintroduce himself to the world through this family, to help the world know the one true and living God. However, Pharaoh will not let his economy crumble and just simply let these slaves go because some person claims to speak for a God. And after sending many plagues to Egypt to loosen the Pharaoh's oppressive grip on Israel, one night God sends a final plague. He unsheathed the sword of divine justice. And this justice would fall on everyone. It could not pass over the Jews simply because they were Jews in every home in Egypt on that night. Jews and Egyptians alike, someone would die under the wrath of justice. The only way for a family to escape the wrath of justice was for them to put their faith in the word of God and do exactly what he said and offer a sacrifice and take this lamb, this unblemished lamb, and, and put blood on the doorpost as a sign of their faith in God. In every home that night, there would be death. It would either be the death of a lamb as a substitute and as a sacrifice and as a safety net for families, or it would be the death of their child. When justice came down, either it fell on your family or you took shelter under that substitute, under the blood of the lamb. And if you did not accept this shelter, then death would surely come. And if you did accept this shelter, then death death passed over you. 
and you were saved. That's why this feast that the Jews were celebrating is called Passover. This is how God delivered the Israelites and led them into freedom, into the promised land. This momentous just event caused Pharaoh to release his grip and let the people go. And it was on this journey out of bondage, out of Egypt, that, that the Passover meal would retell this story. And so while this event took place, they ate a meal that evening that would retell this very story they experienced. And it's the meal that Jesus sends his disciples to prepare for. He sends them in and says, you will see someone with a water jug. They will know that to prepare a place for us to eat this meal. And so there are several elements of this feast, of this meal, to retell this story. The first is the lamb, which had to be roasted over a fire. All the lamb had to be eaten that night, for they could not take it with them. Nothing could be saved. The lamb reminded the participants of this first Passover, in which the angel of death was kept from visiting the firstborn of the family, because they were protected by the blood of the lamb. Second, there was unleavened bread, which reminded them of the swiftness of God's deliverance. His rescue of them out of Egypt was so swift that, that, when they, that they, they couldn't even bake bread properly. It was time to go. Third, there was a bowl of salted water, reminded them of the tears shed in captivity and the crossing of the Red Sea. Fourth, the bitter herbs recalled the bitterness of slavery. It was to remind them of the hardship that, that, that God had freed them from something. Fifth, there was a few fruit puree, which reminded them of the clay which they had used to make bricks in their captivity in Egypt. They were to remember, they were to reflect on the difficulty of the oppression of the slavery so that they could be thankful and gracious that God had freed them from that. And sixth, four cups of wine were to remind them of promises in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. And so with this meal spread out over several hours, we read how Jesus facilitated differing parts of it. Begin the night with the first cup of wine. It's the cup of sanctification for the promise, I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egyptian. I will set you apart. I will make you distinct from them. I will remove you from. The second is the cup of deliverance for the promise of I will rescue you from their bondage. It is sometime within these cups that, Je that Jesus begins to almost interrupt the normal proceedings. While he's there with his disciples in the upper room, he, he actually takes the bread after the first cups and takes it, says he blessed it, he broke it, and then he gave it to his disciples. And these are the same words that Jesus used, that, that Mark used to describe Jesus doing this act when he feeds the 5,000. Imagine the astonishment of the disciples when Jesus begins to bless the, the bread, uh, just a standard practice of the feast, but he begins to change some of it. 
and begins to explain their symbolism. Imagine their surprise. Jesus departs from the script. The words that they had been told over and over and over again, that's been reenacted by generation after generation. And he shows them this bread and says, this is my body. What does that mean? Jesus is saying, this is the bread of my affliction. Bread of my suffering. Because I'm going to lead the ultimate exodus and bring you the ultimate deliverance from bondage. In ancient times when someone would say, I'm not going to eat or drink until I fill in the blank, they were making an oath. When they made an oath, they did it with blood. This oath meant that you were making a covenant, a solemn relationship of obligation. That's what that word covenant means, between you and another party. Like signing a contract. But this covenant established and sealed by the killing of an animal, cutting it in half and walking between the pieces as you stated your oath. Or sometimes you would spill the blood on you and have it sprinkled on you as you made that promise, as you walk through the pieces. It's gory. It's gruesome. It seems so foreign and re- just repulsive to us. Why would you do that? But it was a way of saying and symbolizing the seriousness. If I do not fulfill my promise, may my blood be spilled. May I be cut in half. This was a very vivid way of making the covenant binding. These words, the, as Jesus takes He blesses it. He breaks it and he gives it. And when he's saying, this is me, take it, receive it. Jesus is signaling his gracious activity on behalf of the disciples. All the activity signified by the verbs thus results in the gift of Jesus himself, holy and without reserve. In his self-offering for the disciples, he doesn't say something like, oh, you're asking something of Me, I'm not going to give it to you now. What Jesus is symbolizing here in this moment, as as he's offering himself up, taking something, ripping it apart, giving it to the disciples, saying, I am giving all of me to you. And you may ask of me. And Jesus is not begrudging. What Jesus is saying, though, is that as he offers it to us, is that we must take it. We have to receive it actively just like real food you don't get the benefit of food unless you take it and digest it to be nourished by the meal you must actually take a piece of this bread and eat it the mealness of this moment is to remind that no one can appropriate the benefits of jesus unless there is relationship with jesus as jesus stands before his disciples he is saying receive me actively don't just take it and passively be around me but feed on me and again this these these words these metaphors of this meal helps us understand the relationship the gravity the participation in something the jews celebrated each passover by eating this meal with their families Passover, doing this together, was a family meal. We may be wondering, so Jesus is pulling his disciples away from their 
families and organizing this meal without them and their families. What is going on here? What Jesus is beginning to show in this moment is that he was creating an altogether new family. See, what binds Christians together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together around this meal because they have been rescued by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies, ones who normally would be at odds with each other, but who now love each other because of Jesus. As certainly as the disciples eat the bread which Jesus hands to them, so certainly will he be present with them when they gather for table fellowship together as a family. Jesus' first gift to the disciples was the pledge of his abiding presence with them in spite of his betrayal and death. This first word around taking, bless, breaking, and give thus anticipates the resurrection and the real presence of the Lord at the celebration of the final feast. But more on that in a moment. So between the offering and the bread from the first two cups and then the bread, then they would actually eat the full meal. They would eat the herbs. They would would eat the lamb. They they would dip pieces of bread in the fruit puree and begin to eat and participate. And so after some time has passed, Jesus takes the third cup, the cup of redemption for the promise in exodus that says i will redeem you with an outstretched arm likely in verse 23 jesus takes this third cup and jesus gives it to the disciples and says this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many and hebrew thought the life of the creature resided in its blood jesus reference to the cup as my blood, thus implies the very life of his that will be poured out for them. The blood of the covenant cannot be understood apart from the first covenant that Moses instituted by throwing the blood on people in Exodus 24, recognizing that they were making a solemn promise to God because God had made a solemn promise to them. And that covenant was sealed by necessity with blood of a surrogate sacrificial animal. The new covenant here that Jesus is referencing comes from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, which the covenant, the promise that that God would make himself a people, to make himself known for the world, would not be, be one of just a single ethnicity, but of all nations, of all people groups. That would be written on people's hearts, not on something, some stone tablets. That he would create a new family through the anticipated Messiah. It's this family, this covenant, that must be sealed by Jesus' blood. It is not simply thrown on the community as in Exodus 24, we're saying to received it externally, but it's actually put into his followers. See, it's Jesus' sacrifice in this moment where he brings value 
back to people. That's what redeem means, so to, to give its value back. Just like if, if you have a, have a gift card and it has money on it, and then you utilize that gift card, there is inherent value to it, and that value then enables you to receive something. See, Jesus is redemption. He brings redemption. His sacrifice is for all the lawless sinners and transgressors. Those who rebel or think they know better than God. He says, I will restore value to you and your life. Take, drink this cup. It's poured out for you. And at the end of the meal, we come to the fourth cup. It's a cup of praise saying that I will take you as my people. The final hope is present with this cup. And Jesus actually chooses to abstain from this cup. He, he, he says by, by mentioning that the coming kingdom is, that at this Passover meal, he, it's gonna, there's going to be an eventual feast. There's going to be an ultimate feast. That's why he says, truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And they sing us him and, and depart. See, if you put seeds into a pot of soil and then put it away in the dark, away from the sun, the seeds go into dormancy. They can't grow to their potential. But if you bring the pot with seeds into the presence of the sun, all that has been locked within them bursts forth. Something grows out of that. The Bible says that everything in this world, not just we human beings, but even the plants, the trees, the rocks, is dormant. These things are just shadows of what they have been, would be, and will be in the presence of their Creator. When the Lamb of God presides over the final feast and the presence of God covers the earth again, that's what Jesus is anticipating in this final cup. The trees, the hills will clap and dance. So alive will they be in the presence of their Creator. And if the trees and hills will celebrate, if they will clap, if they will dance, in the future kingdom, picture what you and I will do in the true and full presence of everything being restored and made whole again. So in closing the supper, they likely sang one of Psalm 115 through 118 before departing that upper room. They had reenacted the story of God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt through the eating and breaking of bread through the bitterness of herbs and the, the, the saltiness and, and bitterness of the water and the fruit puree. Participating in all that. Retelling that there is a God who cares and moved on their behalf. There is a God who rescues and provides and delivers even in the midst of hardship. Even when they, they don't completely understand what's happening, there is one who provides a way through. And there was a promise at the end of that. I started with the picture of the Passover to help you understand the weightiness of this moment. The Passover was that family celebration. And as Jesus pulls together his disciples as he pulls together his followers, 
What's amazing as Mark writes this and recalls this story is rather than beginning with family, the night begins on a note of betrayal. I jumped to the middle of the story. The sweet picture of family, of rescue, of deliverance. It's not how Jesus starts. Take a look back at verse 17. When he, he came with the twelve, and they were reclining and eating, he says, one of you will betray me. One of you who is eating with me. All the other elements of the meal point back to the fact that someone will betray Jesus. While we may have hindsight on the culprit of betrayal, spoiler warning, it's Judas who commits the obvious act. But Jesus' statement, one who is eating with me does not limit the field of suspects, but expands it. For everyone present there, more than the twelve who were even present there, eat with Jesus. Caught off guard by a statement of Jesus, once again, the group defaults to being defensive. Surely not I, not me. Jesus, no way could I betray you. No way could I, I be complicit in you giving up your, your body and your blood being poured out for me. And Jesus takes that bread and dips it. And he gives it to Judas, as we learn in other texts. Though the others are not absolved of guilt. See, for at some point, they will abandon Jesus. Due to weakness, fear, or cowardice. Jesus makes a statement that is one of the most suggestive verses in all Scripture on the relationship between divine purpose and human responsibility. By using the phrase, Son of Man will go just as it has been written about him, carries a sense of divine purpose. See, this meal was a, a, to foreshadow the, the true one, the ultimate one who would provide covering, who would provide rescue, who would be the ultimate sacrifice. But what's amazing is that there is no place in the pre-Christian tradition, however, where the Son of Man is destined to suffer. The figure who is destined to suffer is rather the servant of the Lord from Isaiah 53. The idea that the Son of Man, Jesus himself, identifies himself with the suffering of the suffering servant of the Lord and sees in his passion the fulfillment of the vicarious atonement of others. What Jesus is saying is you will receive freedom. You will receive deliverance you will be made new and you have the promise of restoration because of me and yet one of you who is sitting here while it has been promised for that to be true will be the culprit one of you sitting here sharing a meal with me as jesus is describing saying you will be complicit in this act the betrayer was one of Jesus' chosen disciples. Thus Jesus goes in accordance with God's predetermined will, but the betrayer is not exonerated of the guilt. Neither Jesus nor Judas is an instrument of blind fate or a pawn of divine strategy. They both willingly act. Jesus and willingly 
gives himself up for others. And Judas willingly sacrifices Jesus for his personal sake. Divine providence neither cancels human freedom nor relieves responsibility for moral choices. But currents of divine foreordination and human free will will always intersect in the words to deliver up. In one act, Jesus is employed in God's holy and necessary purposes and betrayed by Judas to his enemies. And what's amazing is, while that starts the evening, what concludes it as they finish the Passover dinner, as the Lord and Je- Jesus makes his way to the Mount of Olives to pray, knowing what's about to come, he shakes up the twelve again. He tells them that not only one of them, Judas, will betray him, but they will also all fall away. The prediction is grounded in the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Jesus is the sheep and the shepherd. You see how all these images, all these metaphors, that the, 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 the people of God have reenacted over and over and over again are beginning to be fulfilled, coming to a fulfillment, coming to a climax, and Jesus is saying, in himself. But Jesus is saying, as I lay down my life for you, you will not stand with me. Jesus lets the disciples know how he will act on their behalf. Notice that Mark includes the word all. Every person came with Jesus to this meal with a need. Everyone present participated in the meal. All does not stand alone in this verse, for they all swear allegiance to Jesus, but they also all fall away. And they all fled. The original Last Supper is attended by traitors, by cowards. It's not a table of merit. This is a table of grace. And placing the Last Supper between the betrayal and the defection of the disciples, Mark vividly conveys that many for whom Jesus pours out his life include his own companions around that table. The sin that necessitates the sending of God's Son is not someone else's sin. The sin of Nero or the Pharisees or the chief priests or the scribe or some distant lawless person, but it's the sin of his own disciples, of Peter and James, of you and me. We all come to this meal. We all come to this moment in this passage with a need that we cannot absolve ourselves of our own guilt. We cannot remove our own shame. We cannot eradicate the fear that we feel. See, it's only through the providence of Jesus where the guilty are made innocent, where the shamed are restored to honor, where the fearful are given power. See, it's through Jesus that we remember and understand who we are.
as we come to the table. As we come to a place that we call communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. Whatever tradition or background that you come from, those are some of the words that are used. For generations, we tend to use the word communion. When we take communion every week, we're taking some bread and some juice every single week. We all come with a need. And those who partake in this moment, who, who, who actively receive what Jesus has done for them, do so only as grateful children who stand between the time, between the once-for-all suffering of Jesus for the many and its universal realization in the coming kingdom of God. So this meal tells a story. And here's what's sobering about this story, this setting. The very people who are recipients of this story also participate within it. On both sides of this powerful meal, as I have just said, there stands people who are guilty, who are complicit, who, who need their guilt absolved, who need their shame removed, who need power brought into their life because they stand afraid. Jesus sees these people. He sees those people in the room. He knows what will happen, and yet it does not dissuade him from extending his life for them. See, there's a story within this story, and there is sin. We can pretend, we cannot pretend like sin does not exist. That it's just a matter of perspective. See, we all rebel against God. At some area in our life, we all think we know better than Him. We mistreat people because we think our perspective is better than God's perspective. Or we, we outright rebel because we don't want to obey, because we don't understand who He is and what He has done for us. And instead, maybe are trying to, to earn or maintain comfort. We're trying to, to get approval that is already available to us in Jesus. We're trying to garner power within the world and we don't yet understand. We already have a place at the table. But in spite of your sin, someone moved on your behalf and laid down their life. And that person is Jesus. See, we no longer need to feast on a physical Passover lamb. That's why I didn't bring this lamb here today. Because Jesus is that lamb. He is the one who laid down his life for us. He brings us into the family through his sacrifice. And in this story, we are the disciples. We are the cowards. We are filled with fear. We are wishy-washy. And we know this is not because of what we say, though we pretend not, that, that can't be us, but we know this is us by the behaviors in our lives that portray a different story. This is why communion is so important. This is why each and every week for us as Generation Church, while we take a moment in our gathering as we come together and recognize what binds us together is Jesus. 
And while we all come from different stories, different walks of life, different backgrounds, different experiences, different intellects, different knowledge of even the scriptures themselves, that we can come together as one family because of Jesus. Because while we have burdens, He is the one who says, cast your burdens upon me. Well, we have things in our life that, that oppress us and, 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 and we need deliverance from sins that seem to constantly ensnare us, to hold us down, who tell us and, and make us live less than human lives, just as I offer freedom from those things that bondage you in your life. I restore value and honor because you are my child. See, communion is so important. Because we are all willing participants in our sin. However, we do not have to be known by our sin nor our shame. Rather, we can be known by another name. Child of God. Loved. One of the family. And wherever you're at right now, however you're watching this, I don't know what's it for you. Where you feel like there's not a promise for you whether it's something in your life is weighing you down, whether it's you, you need to deliver from something that just keeps coming after you and you can't escape it, or you just feel like you've been known by something else and you need to be known by a new name. Or maybe you just feel powerless. Know that wherever you stand, Jesus laid down his life for you and he says, take it, eat, be known by something different, drink of a cup, because there is deliverance, relieve your burdens, be made new, and there is hope for you. So wherever you're at, wherever story that is being told about your life and who you are, know that there can be a different story being told. And we can tell that and come to know and remind each other of that. You can know that today. Because of Jesus. So communion helps us actively retell the story of Jesus with our lives. So wherever you're at, however you're feeling today, my encouragement to you is this. If you fled, if you've gone somewhere, return to the table. Return to the table. You are welcome. No matter the bitterness that you've experienced, the difficulty that you've experienced, Jesus' life has been laid down for you to bring you back into the family. Remember, you can come home. Generations Church, may we be a people who tell this story throughout our lives, day in and day out. That no matter where we've come from, what brokenness that we've experienced, what good things we have, or even the things that we hope for, that Jesus speaks to each and every part of that story. Through our lives, may we retell that story, and may we be reminded that each and every time we come to the table. For this is not a table of merit. It is a table of grace.